When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. A skeleton of a Thescalosaurus. A, a skeleton of a Thess... <laughs> yeah, you're doing it to yourself now. A skeleton of a Thessalorus was unearthed. A Thescalosaurus. A, a a skeleton of a Thescesalorus. <laughs> a skeleton of a Thescesalorus was unearthed. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, just I know. say dinosaur. Just say dinosaur. <laughs> This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. As people flock to the national parks in record numbers, our state parks are often overlooked. On today's episode, we're showcasing five phenomenal state parks that you won't want to miss when you're in the area. We'll take you to parks in Washington, Oregon, Nevada, Montana, and West Virginia, and we'll explain what makes each one unique, from waterfalls that you can walk behind, slot canyons that you can get lost in, and trails where you can walk in the footsteps of dinosaurs. Five fabulous state parks coming up next. You know, a lot of people are on a quest to visit all the national parks, but we've heard from people who've said they're on a quest to visit every state park in their state. That's a lot. Yes. I mean, unless you're in Rhode Island. Sorry, Rhode Island. We should look up how many state There's parks are in Rhode Island yeah. before you say that. Yeah, there could be thousands <laughs> right. in Rhode Island. But right. yeah, we've thought about that for the state of Washington, and there's quite a few. There are 142 of them, and we we have been slowly checking them off the list, but we'll have to get really serious if we want to try to visit all of them. There are some little teeny tiny ones <laughs> when you go through the list. I think we have one here, the Flaming Geyser. Is it the Flaming Geyser where the you have to get a park ranger to come out and light it? There's a little <laughs> bit of natural gas coming out. And... Well, I hate to dash your expectations, but the Flaming Geyser no longer burns because its methane source, the the methane that used to come out of the ground, has been depleted. Now, I guess the thing to do there is to float on the Green River. You know what? <laughs> We're getting a little off track here. Okay, first of all, Flaming Geyser isn't, it's not on our list of five fabulous state parks. Okay. The fire no longer burns. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's methane. So <laughs> <laughs> we're not sure where the methane's coming from. Well, it's gone. 
It's it, gone. It's it's now gone. Okay, okay. Got it. Okay, so can we let let's try to get back on track here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and that's one of the things I love about state parks is that they all protect something unique, right? Yes, they do. So we did an episode, gosh, more than two years ago about state parks. That one was called Six Astounding State Parks. Yeah, we did. We talked about Custer in South Dakota, Jedediah Smith Redwoods in Northern California, which looks and feels a lot like Redwood State and National Parks. Well, because it is part of it. Because it is, <laughs> because it is part of it. We, we talked about Valley of Fire in Nevada, Antelope Island and Goblin Valley in Utah, and of course, Smith Rock in Oregon. Well, yes, we had to because of the name. Yeah. Yes, and that was episode number 30, if any of you missed it and want to go back and listen to um, our episode about those state parks. Yeah, and now we have another five. Mm-hmm. Five fabulous. See what I'm doing there? It's alliteration. <laughs> so we had six astounding, and now we have five fabulous. What do you think we should call our next state park episode? Four phenomenal. That it's going to be <laughs> three thrilling. <laughs> and two you won't want to miss and then the next one's just going to be one state park here you go folks all right so stay tuned for that yeah but we have a lot to cover today because these five are fabulous i was going to say fantastic we could have gone with fantastic as no well. they're fabulous fabulous yeah okay all right all right what's our first fabulous state park the first one is silver falls state park in oregon People call this the crown jewel of the Oregon State Park system, and it really is spectacular. It's a great state park. It is, and I think we mentioned in our episode about the CCC, which, by the way, we will be talking about a lot today, the efforts of the CCC in these state parks. I think we mentioned that when we visited Silver Falls, it felt just like a national park, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really did. It's about 20 miles southeast of Salem, Oregon, or an hour south of Portland, and it's the largest state park in Oregon. It has about 9,000 acres in the park, and its most notable feature are its waterfalls. And I think one of the most unique things about this is, yes, there are a series of waterfalls, but there are also, I think, maybe three or four waterfalls that you can actually walk behind. The hiking trail goes behind the waterfall. Yeah. It makes for good video because it looks like you're going right in the falls. Some of our video looked like we were in the shower, quite frankly. Yeah, well, we were there on a rainy day, so we were wet to begin with. That's right, and we, we became more wet. So the most famous waterfall there is South Falls, and that's about 177 feet tall. It's a curtain of water that you can walk behind, and this is part of the Trail of Ten Falls. It's just an incredible hiking trail that takes you through a forest, but you go by, as the name says, you go by 10 waterfalls. Yeah, I wasn't counting when we did that. It's about a 7.2 mile loop. I would say it's moderate. It's not strenuous, right? Right. It has an overall elevation gain of about 800 feet. Yeah, it's not a hard hike. It's just, you know, 7.2 mile loop might be longer than people want to do. And the good news is there is a shorter loop that you can do. You can still see South Falls. Uh, Look at the trail map when you go. And I think you can cut this way down to just a mile or two if, you know, if you have small children with you. Okay, Karen, do we know anything about the history of the state park? (laughs) Well, maybe just a little tiny bit about the history. 
So Silver Falls was officially dedicated a state park in 1933. Now, at this time, the land around Silver Falls had been damaged by logging and farming and a couple of really big fires. And it left this damaged watershed area and a lot of tree stumps. A lot of stumps. It's not Silver Stump. State no, park. no, it's, no. So I think it was pretty much of an eyesore, but the CCC came to the rescue. A camp was established, and these young men in the CCC stayed there until 1942 to replant trees, rehabilitate the landscape, and they also built park structures and trails and all kinds of things throughout the park. That's right, and we saw those when we were there. And it, and like you said, it looks like a national park because it's. The structures are in the style of National Park Service rustic. That was so popular back then. The big, thick, chunky wood and the native stone. Because of that and all of the work the CCC did, it has that National Park feel to it. They need to bring that look back. I know. Definitely. All right. So uh, why do we love this park? Well, we were there in March. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, in March... The water was really flowing. So these falls were, I don't know, they were probably at their peak, I would say. I would think so, too. Yeah, so it was cool to walk behind them. It was amazing. You know, we've never done anything like that before. Every waterfall hike we've ever done, you know, you're standing a little bit away from the base looking at it from a distance, right? But this time we walked behind several of them, more than one, and we couldn't get over. In fact, there was hardly anybody else there because I think we were there on a Tuesday. We just kept walking back and forth underneath the waterfall because it was so amazing. And these are big ones. Yes. I mean, these aren't trickles. These are not trickles, right? And of course, all of the um, vegetation and trees that the CCC planted, what, 90 years ago, are now incredible. It's just a beautiful forested landscape. It's a fantastic park and, uh, you know, great for families. There's a campground there and there are picnic shelters, a playground, horseshoe pits, (laughs) all kinds of fun things to do there. Yeah, definitely recommend the state park if you're in the state of Oregon. And if you go, check out the nearby charming town of Silverton. Uh, You don't want to miss that. That's a historic, cute little town fairly close to the park. Is Silverton named after Silver Falls? Do you know that, Karen? Actually, Silverton was established in 1854, long before the state park, and it was named after Silver Creek. Very good. Mm -hmm. All right, that is Silver Falls State Park in Oregon. We're going to stay in the Pacific Northwest for this next one. We're going to go up to the state of Washington, our home state, to Deception Pass. Washington's most visited state park. That's right. Now, this park is about 4,000 acres with 77,000 feet of saltwater shoreline plus three lakes. A lot of people think that Deception Pass State Park is located on Whidbey Island, but it's actually on two islands connected by two bridge spans. There is Fidalgo Island to the north and Whidbey Island to the south, and these are connected by two bridge spans. Canoe Pass 
and Deception Pass bridges. Now, when you look at these spans, it almost looks like one span, right? Right. There's a little island down in the middle of Deception Pass called Pass Island, and that has the middle supports for these two spans. But everyone just calls this Deception Pass bridge. It's actually two different bridges. Right. And I'm not sure why they named one of the passes canoe pass because I don't think you're taking a canoe through that pass. As a matter of fact, I think it takes a lot of skill and experience to go through these passes in a big boat. Oh, yes. The currents are so strong through that through that pass that you definitely need to be an experienced boater if you are headed through there. Yeah, but it is fun to be up on the bridge and look down at the boats trying to do this. You know, it's so scenic. And a lot of people just go to this park to walk over Deception Pass Bridge. It's one of the scenic wonders of the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, we do that every every time we go past there. We always stop and walk over the bridge. That's one of the things we actually like about the park the most is the view from the bridges. So a couple tips about that. If you're going to walk across the bridge, if you park at a pullout along the road on the north side, then you do not have to pay the state park fee. There is a parking lot on the south side of the bridge, and there is also a um, pay station where you have to pay the state park fee. I think it's about $10. And another thing, too, is no matter if you're walking from the north or south, there are staircases on both ends that go down underneath the bridge. And that's cool to see because then you are obviously looking at the bridge from underneath. There's interesting you know, photos and, and video opportunities there because you're getting Getting the Puget Sound, all the boats, all the landscape, but then you have the underside of the bridge, which is pretty cool. It's an amazing structure. Now, they started construction on this in 1934, and it opened in 1935. This bridge, when you're walking across it, it's 180 feet above the water, and the total length of the span, of actually both spans, is about 1,500 feet. Yeah, so there are pedestrian walkways on both sides of the roadway. Now the roadways are not very wide. I mean, they're just wide enough for trucks to get past, but then there are dedicated sidewalks on either side with guardrails protecting you from both the cars and, you know, going off the edge. And that's where people walk and you can stand there and, and look at the views. Yeah, and it's it is actually very cool to see the views from both sides of the bridge. Right. Right, the east and the west. So if you have the time to walk one length and then go to the other side and walk the other, it's worth it. One more thing I wanted to say about this incredible bridge is in nineteen eighty two it was declared a national historic landmark. Okay, so Deception Pass State Park, one of the things to do is to go up to the bridge and walk along it and see the sites. But that's not all you can do at this state park. Yes, there is some great hiking. Uh, And one of the things we love about Deception Pass State Park is that because it's on the water, the temperatures throughout the year are fairly mild. And I guess what we're saying is there's a lot of Washington state that in the winter is, you know, buried under snow and you cannot hike, but you could always, always, if you don't mind a rainy day, go to Deception Pass and do a hike. And it's nice during the heat waves that we get here, which are more frequent, it seems every summer, being on the water, it's it's a little bit cooler. Absolutely. Yes. Now, one hike we'll just mention that we love. It's the Rosario Head to Lighthouse Point hike. So to get to this one, 
You're going to turn on Rosario Road on the north side of the bridge, and then you drive that to Rosario Beach. The hike is anywhere from one and a half to four and a half miles, depending on where you want to turn around, or you can also do it as a loop. Yeah, we've done this a couple times. It takes you past uh, Bowman Bay, which is a beautiful sight to see. It's a great place to picnic and swim. Yes. Um, And you can also drive and and park there as well. Right. You don't have to hike there. If you have small kids and families, you can just pull right up, have a picnic. It's a beautiful kind of sheltered little bay beach area. And I remember we saw some incredible woodpeckers when we hiked that trail. Remember? The pileated woodpeckers with the redhead, (laughs) like Woody Woodpecker. Yeah. I do not remember that. Well, I think I was so obsessed with looking at all the CCC picnic shelters and other buildings throughout the park that I totally missed the woodpeckers. Yeah, yeah. Woody Woodpecker was there. <laughs> so just really quickly, I wanted to mention that back in 1866, the U.S. government set aside some of this land around Deception Pass as a military reservation so that they could protect this passage from enemy ships. And then in 1922, a congressional act designated the property for public recreation, creating Deception Pass State Park. And they celebrated their 100th anniversary last year. That's right. And of course, the story of the CCC, it always starts in the 1930s, because of course, the CCC was created during the Great Depression. So in the 30s, the CCC built roads, trails, buildings, log railings. Yeah. And the CCC was there from about 1933 to early 1940s. World War II came along and that was the end of the CCC. And there is a CCC interpretive center that's in the Bowman Bay area. Uh, It was originally a bathhouse built in the 1930s and they renovated this into a museum in 1987. So you can check that out. It has exhibits that tell the incredible story of the CCC's work all across the state of Washington during the Great Depression. And is there a CCC worker statue there at Deception Pass, Karen? Yes, there is. Okay. Yes. So mm-hmm. Celebrating the CCC workers who helped yes, build the park. There is one there. All right. And of course, besides activities like hiking, fishing, and swimming, there are kayak tours available. And there are also, and I think this would be fun to do, there are open-air jet boat tours through the waters around Deception Pass. I did not know that. I didn't either. <laughs> we live here. I know. <laughs> also, there's whale watching. So a lot to do in this park besides just walking over the bridge. Right. And so you can get in the water with kayaks and boats and canoes sure. and things. You just need to stay out of the pass. Just the narrow areas where the water's running through the islands there. Away from that area, it can be it can be safe. Absolutely. And of course, on the three lakes that are throughout the park. Right. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention, too, is that in 2021, almost 3.8 million people visited Deception Pass compared to 2.7 million people who visited Olympic National Park in 2021. So it got a million more visitors than our national park here in Washington. Yeah, that's kind of surprising. I wonder if they're just counting cars because it is a roadway. I mean, it is a, a roadway that people use to get from point A to point B. So, Well, it's interesting you said that. They did count cars. 1.2 million cars entered the park in 2021. And I guess maybe they're averaging, what, three people per car is how they came up with the 3.8 million-ish? Oh, God, no. no. 2.5? <laughs> <laughs> 
let's let's not go down. <laughs> let's let's not go into the calculations of, of how to calculate these things. Okay, I will say though, the article where I read that mentioned that it is mostly local people who are visiting. I think a lot of people from out of state don't know about this incredible state park. Well, it's a hidden gem. It is a hidden gem, right. right. And and we love it because the scenery is spectacular, great hiking. Uh, it really has everything. This episode is sponsored in part by Rumpel. Rumpel is introducing the world to better blankets with their full line of durable, premium, ultra-warm outdoor blankets and gear. We never leave home without them. The original puffy blanket is made using recycled polyester and insulation that packs down small in its own bag for easy storage and -and grab-and-go adventures. I like them because Rumpel pairs durable 20D ripstop nylon with a DWR finish that's water, stain, and odor resistant. But when you do spill coffee on yours, I can throw it in the washing machine when we get home, and it's good as new. Rumpel blankets are the best way to stay cozy and warm on any adventure. Whether you're traveling across the country or picnicking at your local park, Rumpel has you covered. Literally. Shop their line of over 140 prints and designs, including their National Park Collection, at rumpel.com forward slash Bob and Sue. And use the code Bob and Sue for 10% off your first order. That's R-U-M-P-L dot com slash Bob and Sue. Okay, we are leaving the Pacific Northwest, going all the way to West Virginia. And we're going to talk about Babcock State Park. Yes. Now, we happened upon this gem when we were visiting New River Gorge National Park. It's only about 20 miles southeast of the New River Gorge Bridge, so it's really quick and easy to go over there for a visit. Right. If you're at New River Gorge National Park, you got to make this side trip. You got to go to Babcock State Park. Well, you do, because what makes this park so unique is... The Glade Creek Grist Mill. It's the most photographed spot in West Virginia, and it is just such a charming sight. I know a grist mill, recommending that you go see a grist mill doesn't sound like a (laughs) super exciting thing to do, but it is picturesque. It's beautiful. We were there in the fall, and it was, you know, in the fall, it's fantastic. So yeah, it, it's it's something cool to see. It really is. Now, this is a fully functional replica of the original Cooper's Mill, which once stood on the grounds of the park. This current mill was built in 1976, and it serves as a tribute to the hundreds of mills that once dotted the landscape of West Virginia. And when you're there looking at it, it's a relatively new mill, but it doesn't look like it. It was built, it was actually built built with parts salvaged from older mills that ceased to operate. So the main structure, for instance, is from the Stony Creek Grist Mill in Pocahontas County. Yes. I love it that they salvaged parts from other mills. The That giant water wheel is from a historic mill. So they, they brought in parts and built this Glade Creek Grist Mill. I think that's cool. You like to think that um, we're just stepping back into history. Yes. Yes. I love it. (laughs) Now, as we mentioned, this is a fully functioning mill and the park has a miller, a person who still grinds the corn and does demonstrations. Yeah. I want that job. I want the job of of grinding stuff. Bring bring your stuff in. This is a current day employee of the park whose job it is to grind corn and 
flower and uh, whatever. And, and do demonstrations. I know. You would love that. This used to be an important profession. People would come from all over and bring their grain and they would grind it up and Yes, and they would, would barter for their services. They would exchange I guess money didn't really exchange hands, but they would trade, you know, butter or I don't know. I think I would be good <laughs> eggs. At, I would be good at bartering. <laughs> Yes, we didn't get to see a demonstration when we were there, but you can purchase a bag of cornmeal from the park gift shop, cornmeal that was actually ground there at the Glade Creek Chris Mill. Do you think the current miller would barter with me? Well, were you planning to show up to the park with a big bag of corn? (laughs) Maybe some Dirtlander t-shirts in the trunk. He's a miller. And he he needs t-shirts, maybe a hat or a a t-shirt that says we don't get these days back. No. Okay. Okay, so a a quick history on this one. A man named E.V. Babcock deeded the property to the state in October 1934, hence the name. What does E.V. stand for? Electric vehicle? Well, that's a good guess, but it was Edward Vos. So again, the main facilities and the trails were constructed by the CCC between 1934 and 1937. And as we mentioned in our CCC episode, these um, workers created a lot of state parks from scratch, and this was one of them. So they would literally go in and make a state park. They made a lot of state parks. I'm not supposed to comment during the history <laughs> segments. So the park opened on July 1st, 1937. And you can see some evidence of the CCC's work. The main park headquarters, 13 cabins, a horse stable, the superintendent's house. They constructed a natural swimming pool and picnic facilities from local quarried stone And the door latches and other metal work were hand-forged on site by the CCC workers. And one more thing, the landscape of this park had been completely cleared of vegetation by fires that followed the logging of this site. But because of the work done by the CCC to plant trees and other native vegetation, by the mid-1950s, the hillsides were, were green again, and this park... Um, really was transformed into um, the gorgeous landscape that you see today. Yeah, I, I was just curious as to what the fires had to burn if it was all already logged. The stumps. <laughs> stumps. A lot of stumps burning. Yeah, okay. a lot of stumps. And, you know, the native vegetation, Matt. Now, one of the cool things is you can stay in one of the CCC cabins. They're called Legacy Cabins, and they are wood frame and stone construction. They do now have electricity. I'm sure they probably didn't when they were built back in the 1930s. No, but you got a free bag of cornmeal if if you stayed in those cabins. (laughs) Right, right. These Legacy Cabins close for the season on the fourth Monday in October. So all the info is available on the park website. And they also have uh, some cabins available that were built later, not by the CCC. So there's kind of a wide variety of choices there. Okay, what can you do in the park, Karen? You can fish, you can boat. There are 20 miles of hiking trails. Yes. And of course, you can look at the mill and try to get a photo. Yes, and that's what most people seem to be doing. I know, that that can yeah. kind of be a challenge sometimes. Because when we were there, the people would get into the creek and try to wade across the creek and get 
a really good picture of the grist mill and and those people are now in our photos. <laughs> right. We were there in October, which is a really really popular time obviously because of the, you know, the changing foliage and this charming setting. Now, this park is open all year, all year round, but the the mill, the guest cabins and the campgrounds are only open seasonally. So, if you are visiting New River Gorge National Park, especially maybe around Bridge Day in the fall, or you're just there to see the colors, this is a fantastic place to go because that's one of the reasons we love this park so much. It's charming. Yes, and they have done a beautiful landscaping job. The CCC, when they were doing their work, there's a great visitor center slash gift shop. And then on the side, remember those terraces and steps down to the water? It's just one of the most charming state parks that we have visited. Okay, we're going to move on to the state of Montana and Makoshika State Park. (laughs) Makoshika is how you pronounce it. It isn't how we pronounced it for a couple months before we got there. (laughs) Right. It looks like, when you look at the word, it looks like it would be pronounced Makoshika, (laughs) which is what we called it for months. But it is Makoshika, which is an Indian word for badlands. Yeah, not bad in a bad way. No. But but bad bad as in Badlands way. And interesting because it does look similar, I think, to Badlands National Park. So this is in eastern Montana. It's a remote area. It's near the town of Glendive. uh, And it's about an hour to the west of Teddy Roosevelt National Park. Yes. So it's a great add-on when you're visiting Teddy Roosevelt. This is Montana's largest state park. It has more than 11,000 acres. Yeah, it's an interesting piece of land. Uh, well, like we said, it's it's Badlands, but it's got these really unusual rock formations. Uh, they call them cap rocks, right? And I think these are these are similar to what you would find in Goblin Valley State Park in in Utah. I mean, they're they're different. These cap rocks. It's harder rock on top, and then when wind and water erode the softer layers below them, it kind of leaves a little well. A cap on Mm -hmm. on top of a spire. It also has spires, hoodoos, hogback ridges, fluted hillsides, pinnacles, mesas, and buttes. Yes, and the landscape is so unique that in 1938, the site was proposed as a Badlands National Park by the Glendive Chamber of Commerce. So they wrote to federal officials requesting that they inspect their proposed Badlands Park. They wanted to show it to them, and they were hoping to have this park established near Glendive as a national park. However, the National Park Service Regional Office determined that the location was, quote, not of national significance, end quote. Burn. (laughs) So the site then became a state park in 1939 when Dawson County donated an initial 160 acres to the state and another 80 acres were donated by the county in 1953. Yeah, and then the state acquired the rest of the land from uh, the Bureau of Land Management Dawson County and other private landowners, and so this is what they have. Right. And even though the National Park Service didn't think it was good enough for a national park, we think it's a pretty remarkable state park. Besides 
the landscape that makes this park unique. One of the things that was so interesting to us is that this park is on Montana's dinosaur trail, and they have found a lot of dinosaur fossils here. Yeah, who doesn't like a dinosaur fossil? Nobody doesn't like a dinosaur fossil. Yeah, they found over 10 different dinosaur species in the park, and some of the significant discoveries include a triceratops skull. Uh, They also found a Tyrannosaurus rex. I I love the Tyrannosaurus rex. I think it's my favorite dinosaur. I know. It's mine, too. And then a nearly complete skeleton of the rare (laughs) Thessalosaur. People are now (laughs) rushing to eastern Montana to go see that. Yes, back in 1991, they found a 600-pound juvenile female triceratops skull measuring five and a half feet long. And you can see this skull. It's displayed in the park's visitor center. And then in 1997, a Thescalosaurus, considered to be the largest and most complete skeleton of its kind, was found by an expedition. What was that again? What what dinosaur was it's that? It's a Thescalosaurus. You've been practicing <laughs> You've been practicing that to make me look bad. Well, it doesn't take much. (laughs) Okay, well, there you go. Karen, it's also a kid-friendly park. Well, it is, because not only do you have the dinosaur fossils, which is, is fun for kids of all ages, but there are a lot of really short hikes. Our favorite hike in the park was Cap Rock Trail. It was a half mile loop to a natural bridge and so you get down there now you you walk down 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 to the natural bridge Mm -hmm. great views of the badlands and of course you have to walk back up right and you're walking amongst these hoodoo shapes these mushrooms it's a beautiful hike and they laid it out really well there's some staircases and it's just a really fun hike and cap rocks and cap rocks yes thank you that would actually be the correct term yep now for a great view Uh, there's a very, very short little hike called Twin Sisters that takes you to these very cool rock formations, and it's less than a half mile out and back. Yeah, there were a couple of other hikes we did. We were on a trail that we saw a fossil. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they had plenty of signs around it to stay back so you don't disturb the area and the fossil. But yeah, I mean, this is... It's the real thing. There are there are dinosaur fossils out there. Yes, uh, such a cool place to explore. After we had left, though, just one note, we stopped at the subway in Glendive, and we were standing in a line, and I started chatting with the woman in front of us who lived there in Glendive, and we had told her we just visited the park, and she asked us if we had seen any rattlesnakes. Yeah, that was one of the first things she asked. <laughs> it was. Yeah. And we said, no, but we were looking for them, and she said, oh, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. Um, so that made me a little nervous. I was glad we had finished our visit to yeah, the Yeah, that would have been good information to have ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, this park is open all year round. However, to get up to a lot of these cool trailheads, there is a uh, dirt road with a couple of switchbacks, and that is closed in the winter. Yeah. 
Yeah, the gravel road there. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And as far as their hours in the summer season, the park is open daily from May 1st through September 30th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And in the winter, it's open from October 1st through April 30th on Wednesdays through Sundays only. And that is from 10 to 4. Yeah, that was fun. So that was fun on our latest road trip through the West to go see that. Makoshika. Makoshika. Mm-hmm. All right. One last state park, Karen. Yes. And this is also a fun state park in Nevada. It's called Cathedral Gorge. It's not a big one. No, it's only about 1,600 acres. And it's also remote. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's about 90 minutes west of Cedar City, Utah, two hours south of Great Basin National Park in Nevada. So it's, yeah, it's... Not hard to find, but it is kind of out of the way. Right. And what makes this park so unique is it has these spires and these kind of sand-colored cliffs that are the result of... A, well, Matt, I'm going to let you do this because this is your this is well, Karen, your what, what are you expertise. Doing <laughs> okay. Well, it's the result of a geological process occurring over tens of millions of years. So first you have this explosive volcanic activity... And then with each eruption, it deposits layers of ash hundreds of feet thick. And sometimes they find the Skesalorises in there. (laughs) (laughs) And then the erosion carves these unique patterns in the bentonite clay and forms like these cave-like slot canyon spire formations that look like cathedrals. Thank you, Matt. The cool thing that I think people are enthralled with in this park is there are all of these very short, almost like slot canyon type of little nooks and you go in and they're not very long, right? So, you, so you'll walk into this like little slot canyon, you'll hit a dead end, you can turn around, go down another passageway. And it's like this very fun maze. I, I always hope I can find my way out again. It is. It's not a destination you would go all the way there just to see it. But if you're on your way passing through, and we said it's remote, why would you be passing through? When we when we drive down to see some of the national parks and other public lands down there, like let's say we're driving down to the Las Vegas area to do all of those public lands, this is on the way. So you're going to want to stop there. And maybe it's only an hour-long visit, but you you don't want to miss the interesting geology of this park. You really don't. And once again, the CCC did some work here. In 1924, the governor of Nevada set aside this area for preservation, and it became one of Nevada's first four state parks in 1935. So the CCC came in. After that, they built the original picnic facilities, which are still there. And they also built this really uh, cool stone water tower that's still there. It's no longer in use. No. But it's there right by the road. Um, And so it's cool to see some of these um, things that the CCC built 90 years ago. Yeah. So in addition to walking through the cathedral spires, little caves there, the canyon caves, the moon caves, which are really their slots is Mm -hmm. what they are. There's also a trail in the park, Miller Point Trail. It's two miles out and back, and there's a staircase on one end. So there's parking on either end of the park. So you could park up above, hike down and then back up, or or do it the other way. But it's about a two-mile 
trail. Right. And you're walking through all of these formations and it looks a little bit like Goblin Valley, don't you think? Yeah, a, little a little bit. bit. As on this Miller Point Trail. Uh, it's kind of a combination, in my mind, of a lot of different parks, but it is just such a cool place. We've been there a couple of times because it's on our way, as you said, Matt, to, to Utah or to Las Vegas. But this last time, we were there in October, and it, so pretty close to Halloween, and it was a stormy day with these huge black storm clouds. <laughs> yeah, you, you thought it was had a scary vibe, didn't you? It did kind of have a scary vibe, and we were literally the only people there. And so we're going in these slots, and um, it was a little eerie, I have to say, but very, very fun. So it's one of those uh, parks that is fun for kids of all ages. Yeah, so there you go. Those are five fabulous state parks to check out when you're traveling through the public lands of this great country. Yes, I wish we could do one on 500 fabulous state parks because there really are so many unique ones out there. And we always get people who write to us and tell us about unique state parks in their state. So I have actually a very long list of parks still to see. 500? <laughs> yeah, practically. <laughs> you know, there are also a couple of really great ones in Hawaii. So I'm thinking maybe ah. over the winter, you know, it would be work research, right? Yeah. It, yeah. yeah. It'd be a work trip. Okay. Yeah. Well, we put that in the bucket. Definitely put that in the bucket. All right. Thanks to all of you for joining us today. And a special shout out to our listeners in Australia and New Zealand. We appreciate you all tuning in. As everyone knows, one of the biggest, most important holidays of the year is coming up, Father's Day. And I have a few suggestions about some great Father's Day gifts. For yourself? No, no, no. It's not about me. It's about my Dirtlander.com website, full of great gift ideas. You got stickers, t-shirts, hats. Also, any or all of our Dear Bob and Sue books, season one, two, or three, or of course, Dory's Ho. Those are all available on Amazon.com. You know what I'm going to get you for Father's Day, Matt? No, I have no clue. <laughs> I'm going to get you a big bag of corn kernels that you could take to Babcock State Park. <laughs> corn so corn kernels? So you could barter with the miller there. <laughs> <laughs> 